and my English was terrible. And so I showed her my diploma and, you know, that I had gone to school in in Freiburg and all of that. And and then she set me down at a double-headed scope and she says, identify these cells. And I thought, oh, God, this is going to be terrible. But, oh, yeah, leukocyte, that's a... Leukocyte uh, is a leukocyte. Okay, great, you know. And so I, oh yeah, this is a, um, a lymphocyte, this is a monocyte. Well, in English, it's a monocyte. So I, and, and, and it was written down here, and I clicked the right thing, and she says, can you start on Monday? Welcome back to The Grand Project, a podcast where grandparents are invited to share their stories about growing up and growing old. I'm Kitty Janvrin. I know the past few episodes I always start with saying how excited I am to have our guest on and how wonderful I think the interview is, and today's episode is no exception. I am so excited to have a hand in sharing our guest's story with you today. Ingeborg Mueller-Hobbs better known as Inga or Oma, has an absolutely incredible story, and she is a beautiful storyteller. She has been a refugee and a medical technologist with an impressive career. She's an immigrant, a mother, and also a grandmother to my second cousins, Abby and Allie. I know that political tensions are mounting here in the United States, And listening to Ingeborg share her experiences and her outlook on God and on humanity and how we should treat each other really helped me this week. I think the wisdom she shares is both timely and timeless. And I hope this conversation gives you a few laughs, makes you think, and encourages you to realize that you are, in fact, stronger than you think. My name is Ingeborg Käthe Paula Müller Habs. And they call me here Inge because nobody could pronounce Ingeborg. So when I first came to this country and got my job at Johns Hopkins Hospital, I tried to say Ingeborg and they said, huh? And no, you're going to be Inge. Okay, so I'm Inge. Really? And then uh, Oma is the word for grandmother in Germany. And so... My grandchildren call me Oma, and some adults call me Oma, too. (laughs) So, and I was born, it seems like a hundred years ago, but actually 77 years ago, in a part of Germany, which is now Poland. It was German when I was born there during 1943, and... uh, January 1943, and um, then, as you know, the Nazi regime uh, under Hitler started World War II in 1939 Mm -hmm. by um, invading Poland. And um, so my mom and I were stuck in that area in where I was born, and my dad was a physician, and he was um, with the German army in France. He was a troop physician. So 
The Russian front was coming through. Germany was beginning to lose the war. And uh, my whole generation always... Uh, could never understand what really happened with all of that and the atrocities that happened under Hitler. And we learned little by little later how all that happened. And so the day after my second birthday, the Russian front was coming through from the east and my mother had to make a decision to get out of the way. And also the German soldiers were running from there. And so my mother actually took me, it was January 45, and she took me on a bicycle to the next railroad station. And she described how the icy road and how she would slide, the roads were like that, and how would she slide... She could only take me and what she wore. And she made it to the train station. The soldiers that were running from away from the Russian front, they were getting the actual train cars. And so the refugees, which we were in our own country, we were given the cattle cars. And so... And there are some other side stories of that. But basically, uh, she, she thought she was going back home. She even worried about the tablecloth that she had spilled some wine on that she had put in the snow and forgot to take it in. Well, she never made it there, and later we heard it was all bombed out anyway. So she made it to Dresden, and if you know, if you might have heard Dresden, there was a movie made about four-day or three-day, four-day bombing of Dresden mm -hmm. was totally... Um, and we were kicked out of the railroad's uh, cars, and my mom and had me. She didn't know where to go. And so... This man who worked at the railroad station, he came up to her and he says, Little lady, uh, where? You, you seem lost. She was dirty and, you know, totally didn't know what to do. Sure. Hungry, whatever. So he sent her, the way I understand it, like a cattle car that was going in his town. Um... And he says, go to this address, go to my wife and tell her that I sent you. You can get cleaned up and spend the night there. Well, that night, Dresden was bombed, and the man never made it home. So and my mother stayed with those people for six months. I never met them because later, but I still know the, the name of the lady because my mom was always talking about her. And she would send her care packages because that they were stuck behind the Iron Curtain in the right. Soviet, um, what they called then East Germany, along with most of my mother's family. And uh, so my mother made her way 
by hook and crook after the end of the war. The war ended in 1945, I think in May or something like that. And June, July, she was given some food. She took it to the telegraph office and she forged a telegram so she could get on a on a train to make it through there because she was trying to meet up with my father through the Red Cross, which she did. And then later, my, my dad actually was um, an American prisoner of war, and he also... Um, was his specialty was infectious diseases. Mm. So he was treating GIs and Americans, um, uh, and, and uh, GIs and German prisoner of wars. And I still have a nice letter from the medical uh, chief, you know, um, in English. And so... That's where I originated from. So I ended up as we, my mom, mom and I, ended up a refugee in our own country, and the families had to take refugees in. They didn't like it too much, you know. Nobody right. likes that. And so I, to to this day, I have a soft touch when I hear about children and. People running. Mm-hmm. People don't run from their homeland unless something happens there. And so I then um, grew up there. My dad was Catholic. My mom was Lutheran. Um, he was assigned a practice. They, as you know, they have universal health care, so the practices are usually assigned to the physicians in a little village. And uh, so from then on, he he saw patients in one room and we lived in the other room. So when I see how people are living today in these big mansions and whatever, it's like they're trying to accumulate so much. Mm -hmm. And what for? You know, because life is so fragile, it's much more important to be there for other people. So then uh, I went to school there. I was raised Catholic until I got kicked out of the Catholic Church at the age of 10. And I thought I was kicked out. I have to specify this, okay? Um what happened is we sometimes we didn't have enough to eat. We always had like a farina or um you know a piece of meat here and there and that, but we mostly ate potatoes and things like that you know during those times and ever so often there was a big piece of bologna or something like that. no refrigeration, and in the cellar, everybody who lived there had a little cubby hole with a net in front of it and they had their spoilable things in there Mm -hmm. and my mother had a piece of bologna in there that was supposed to be meant for evening dinner, supper 
Abendessen in German. And I ate it. And my mother asked us, who ate the bologna? I wouldn't tell her. <laughs> and so she accused the neighbors, okay, that they took her bologna, and maybe by mistake, but they took it. So by that time, I had already had my first Holy Communion, and I, uh, I was very worried about lying to my mother and stealing the bologna. So I went to confession, and, you know, I told him that I stole bologna. And he says, well, who did you steal your bo the bologna from? Because it was a big thing, you know, stealing food. And mm -hmm. I said, from my mother. And he, and he told me I needed to tell my mother that. And I, he gave me, you know, my Hail Marys and and do my, um, I don't know what the word is in English, um, but I, I did, and then he, he says, he also said to me, you need to tell your mother, and I promised I would tell him. Well, I was more afraid of my mother than I was of God, so I, ne I didn't tell her. So the next week when I went to confession, I confessed that I lied. But I didn't tell him to whom, and he never asked me what. And so I, in my mind, I had it all cleared up, okay? So this had to be uh, in like 50, 50, 59, no, not 59, you know, like 51, or something like that, and and about three to six months later, my dad told me I'm no longer going to the Catholic Church. So in my mind, I thought God knew this that I lied to the priest, mm -hmm. you know, and stole the baloney, and that I really didn't come clean. So I thought they kicked me out. And um, he just says, from now on you go to your mother's church, to the Lutheran church. And I did that. And um, there you have to have a direct connection to God. You, you don't have to go through all of this. And you couldn't really lie and do anything like that. Make a long story short, um, it was not the baloney. It was that the priest was fooling around with children, and my dad was aware of it because he was the physician. Never told me because I was so little, and I found that out when I was after I was already confirmed in a Lutheran church. I was about fourteen, fifteen when I found out about it, and so. That's is something that stuck in my childhood, okay? I later, when my mom was about 60 or so, I told her, hey, by the way, I stole the bologna, but she couldn't remember what bologna or when it was or whatever. But you finally came clean. I finally <laughs> came clean, so, yeah. Wow. Did that change your faith at all? I know you were changing denominations. and Well, to me, I had oversimplified this thing I'm sure there are other Catholics who who 
don't look at it that simple. But to me, it was basically if you did something wrong, you could just tell the priest, do your Hail Marys and do whatever, and it's all, you know, Mm -hmm. which you can't do as a Lutheran or as anyone else who has to have the direct pipeline. So, yes, it did change me. You know, I, I still go... When I go back to Europe, I go to sometimes to a Catholic um, mass. I go to a Lutheran. I go to an Episcopalian Methodist. And my dad told me a long time ago, follow the life of Jesus. Don't really listen to the ground personnel that much mm-hmm. because they're all human, okay? And that seems to help me. If, if it doesn't make any sense, plus he says, you were given a brain, uh, by God, and your brain, you know, should guide you. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that that has been working for me. Yeah. Right or wrong, I don't know, okay? And I would never judge anybody's faith, no. And as you know, we all go back to Abraham, and that goes for the Muslims, it goes for the Christians, and it goes for the Jews, and it doesn't really matter, okay? Right. <laughs> I mean, right is right and wrong is wrong. Absolutely. And none of us know what we're doing no. <laughs> ever. No. Uh, so how would you describe your parents? What were they like when you were younger? My parents were very, very, they were in the survival mode. My parents really, I was four years old when my brother came along and then I was six years old when my third my second brother came along there were three of us and from the time I was four years old I was really looked at myself as a mother Hmm. because when they did do something it was my responsibility if it was good it was good, but if it was bad, it was really my fault. And uh, so I, I basically looked at myself as a mother from the time I was a little girl because they were trying to build a practice. They were trying to... My mom had to be there for the patients because back then doctors made house calls and whatever. So my parents were... I loved my mother. My dad, from what I understand, never was the same after he came back from the war because he was basically a very sensitive person. He was the, the type of person who could play almost any instrument. Wow. He uh, later, when I was a teenager, in the town where we were assigned, that was his creative outlet. He would teach the farmers, there's a word, uh, the the people who grow wine, what are they called in English? Oh, um, they run wineries, vineyards. uh, Vineyard... um, in German, there's a, a Weingarten Noel there. They're basically growing uh, 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 grapes and, you know, wine. And 
he taught them how to read um, notes and formed a band, uh, Um Papa, local, whatever, wow. and they're still in existence. It's not the same older people, but, sure. you know, they're children and grandchildren. So every time I go back to Germany, my brothers still live there, and they, you know, got married there, have children, and, you know, I that that is something he left. My dad died when he was 55 years old. Basically, um, he was um, addicted, and as a physician, I think he just couldn't handle this post-stress. But back then, they didn't know how to deal with all of that, mm-hmm. and and then not having a homeland and never being able to go back. And he was in like a, a, a motor who was just taking care of the patients, and and he was that was my dad, mm-hmm. and. The older I get, the more I remember of the little things that he taught me. Like, you know, you have a brain, mm-hmm. use it. Um, like when I made the decision to come to the United States, I had met um, Ali's grandfather uh, over there at a German-American festival. And he had come over here in 63, back home. He was drafted for the Berlin crisis. And he had... He kept sending me letters that I should come over. And he wanted to get married. And I was leery about doing that but on the other hand if he had I had some school English mm-hmm. my English wasn't very good you know I am you are he she it is and basic words mm-hmm. but the good thing I had is I had gone to school for medical technology and as you know anything in medicine is built on uh, Latin or Greek so the only thing my dad said to me, go over there. By that time I had a car. Sell your Opel. Have enough money that you can come back. Check it all out. And don't get married right away. Make yourself independent. I don't know how I could do that, but I did. I came over here in 1964, the day after Easter, had my diploma, had a box that the local um, carpenter had made, and I had my valuables in there. And uh, I... The day after Easter, I came and I came in with a green card because I had gone to the um, uh, consulate in Munich and uh, 
so um, my later to be husband had to sign a um, a form that if I wasn't self sufficient that he had to pay for my trip back, you know, so to speak, and all of that, and and I could live with his parents there, and so this was all okay. So I came here the day after Easter. Within like ten days, I. Um, went down to Johns Hopkins and that's another long story but I've somehow karma guided me and this I met this nice man who was the um, administrator of pathology and he took me to the manager of hematology and my English was terrible and so I showed her my diploma and you know that I had gone to school in in Freiburg and all of that and and then she sat me down at a double-headed scope and she says identify these cells and and I thought oh god this is going to be terrible but Oh yeah, leukocyte. That's a leukocyte uh, is a leukocyte. Okay, great. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, just like hepatitis, hepatitis. Okay, uh, appendicitis, appendicitis. It's the same words. You just had to slightly, you know. Okay. And so I. Oh yeah, this is a, um, a lymphocyte. This is a monocyte. Well, in English, it's a monocyte. So I, and, and and it was written down here, and I clicked the right thing, and she says, can you start on Monday? Wow. Were you just so surprised? I was. <laughs> then I had to figure out how to get there, okay? Because my um, my boyfriend, you know, he, he was working, and he had a car, but I didn't have a car. So I had to learn to ride the bus, okay, and all of that. And but it all worked out fine. And um, then um, I don't know how I did it all. I tell you the truth. Looking back at it now, I don't know how, how I had the intestinal fortitude to do all of that. And then I actually uh, worked there for a few months. Had made a little money. Mm-hmm paid my mother-in-law some. I, my uh, my sister-in-law was away at college, so I had her room. And then the plan was to get married uh, in August. I made my 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 uh, uh, bride's um, my gown, and I made the gowns for the uh, bridesmaids. How I don't know you, how I did it all. I know, to have the time to do it while you're working and in this new place. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't do it today. I wouldn't want to do it today. I don't know how I did it. And then I, I did watch television shows to learn the actual, you know. And in in my field, then we had to you know, um, also draw blood. Mm-hmm. And... I had never worked with black people, which 
I learned how to, and, and Johns Hopkins is in the middle of Baltimore, and, you know, so I, I was a little afraid at first, and then, you know, I learned how to do that, and then I realized that all people are the same, and, you know, we all have blood, and everything yeah. is the same, and we shouldn't be afraid of anything. And so, yeah. You and need to tell more people that. <laughs> I know. And, and you know, we we can't be too sheltered. It's it's crazy. You know, we have to. Uh, so, yeah. So jumping back a little bit, how did you, were you attracted to medical technology because of your father, do you think? or I think so, because I grew up in, in, in the household right there because... Um, Little things, like uh, back then you didn't have any analyzers, okay? So if he wanted to see if somebody has glucose in the urine, you basically had a Bunsen burner and you had to take the urine and you had to put some reagent in it and you had to heat it. And then as the color changed, you could see how much. You know, have a, you have a in English... a a color, um, you know, compare chart. it to mm-hmm. a chart to compare it to. And the same thing with, you know, albumin and all of that. So this so this is how I learned little things from him. And I just got very in, uh, interested in, in that. And so I couldn't, he couldn't show me how to do differentials. In other words, differentiating the different... Um, white blood cells, you know, if you have a virus, a viral infection, or if you have a infect, an a infection, uh, the, the, the type of white blood cells that is elevated is a lymphocyte when you have a virus, normal a virus, and the other one, it's the granulocyte, okay? So, so, I knew a little bit about that, but then it, I just needed to go. And then they also taught us their x-rays and the whole thing. And uh, and so it was, which I never did later on. So I specialized in hematology and later chemistry also. And then, of course, I had to go step, go back to school here while... After I got married and had my children, back then you didn't have any maternity leave. Okay, you uh, women back then uh, were basically to stay home with their children, and as you know, probably Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of the few who actually broke the ceiling because she also had a good husband, you know, mm-hmm. who supported her. And it was, um, so I remember when, after I got married and I, I was pregnant with my, with Ali's father, this Hopkins was nice enough to give me three months. But most employers, you know, basically they didn't even want to see that you were showing. And uh, they got away with it. And then, you know, I was fortunate. I had my mother-in-law, and I had another nice lady that I paid, and I trusted her. And But um, 
after my second son came, I had to stop for a year, and it, and then also, you know, I studied, and then I had to pass the boards and all of that here. But my English was getting better all the time, and um, because you, it it just wouldn't work to to use just the education from right. another country. Do you remember some of the TV shows you watched to get your English? Ah, uh, yeah, the dumbest shows. Okay, <laughs> like I Love Lucy. Okay, and uh, you know the uh, uh, Andy Griffith show and. Uh, uh, y- yeah, and and uh, the mm, well, in anything like uh, I can't think of his name right now. I, sometimes I have issues with with names. I can see the face, but um, I do too. So <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, it's singers and you know Dean Martin and mm-hmm. and all of that. I would just listen to conversation, okay, and then I then I would say I would hear Americans. Um, use the wrong grammar and then I think oh I must be saying it wrong okay and then I try and then I say I don't know it, it's little things like when I was uh, te- learning English in school and I would say something like where's it at mm-hmm. and the teacher says what are you trying to say and I said well where is it at he says that's not English, and he, he, and then you know uh, things like that, and 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 it's you say where is it, or where is he, or where you don't need that extra thing. <laughs> then you come to Maryland, and they all say it, okay. Mm-hmm. And then I think, what am I doing wrong? Do do I remember this wrong, okay? And so the the same thing, you know, when. When people misspell like there and there, and it's a minor thing. I, I get this, and often, nowadays it's a spell check too that that throws you off. But you second guess yourself, and uh, and you think because you want to say it the way it's done in this country. But then when I go back and I hear my brothers talk. And I have like my son and all my grandchildren with me, and I say, "Hey, you better speak. Uh, don't speak this dialect, okay? <laughs> speak the, the 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 correct German, right. you know, because it's not right, you know, because they would uh, they would butcher it, <laughs> you yes. know." Um, so, before you met the man that later became your husband. Yeah. Was America even something that you thought about as a possibility for you? Not really. Um, I, the way I heard always about America, America really did a lot of good for Germany. But I really never saw myself leaving Germany. And quite honestly, I thought I would go back. Okay. Hmm. But then I be, fell in love with Germany. But what I found out that after the World War, the NATO, which is basically the Allies, the um, 
British and the American. They prevented from the Soviets to take over all of the devastated countries of the West. They prevented that from happening. And then the Soviets were losing a lot of... They were hemorrhaging in Berlin and around there because the people wanted to come to the West, okay? So then they built this wall in 1961 when, of course, I was still there. My grandmother, my mother's mother, was living uh, in the East, and now you couldn't get there, okay, because they have... The wall. Well, the wall. And I remember President Kennedy. The Germans loved President Kennedy. He came there not too long before he was killed. And he stood there and he said his famous words, Ich bin ein Berliner. In other words, you cannot wall in people. People are people. And you can't wall them in. And this was in 63 he was there. Oh, God, that's my phone. So President Kennedy was there, and so this was in 63 when he was there. I came over here in 64, mainly because I heard so much about the people in the United States. I just wanted to check it out, okay? As it turned out, I had a very good life, okay? Um... My marriage fell apart after 43 years, okay? Um, That shouldn't happen, but it did happen, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried to hold it together, but it just didn't work, okay? And, uh, but, you know, I, you know, um, my two sons, um, they love their father, and I would still do anything I could for him. And... uh, so he, uh, you know, if he's uh, ha- is sick or whatever, you know, I'm right. I'm there for him, and I don't want to go into all the detail of the, about all of that, but um, we had some very good times together, and uh, uh, and so then the wall came down in Germany in '89, when the people actually tore it down. And they had a hard time over there um, putting pieces together because the Soviet Union, the, uh, the Germans under the Soviets hadn't done much building up and whatever. And in 2008, I went over to visit, visit my brother. And we went to the land where I was born because they were born in West Germany okay and the city where I was born was named Breslau and it's a big city in Poland and when I was visiting there it was the year before they were annexed to the European Union Mm -hmm. so borders were open again 
This is how things change. I can't speak Polish, but I I had an old postcard of the inner city of my Oma, and when we went there, they had that city was totally bombed out. They had put it together piece by piece. The facades and everything looked exactly the same. That's incredible. It's just, and that's what, what they have done in many parts of Europe. Dresden, we went to Dresden, and we could, you could still see the black where they took the pieces of, of stone and put it together. And, and it looks beautiful. It's just absolutely beautiful. So we should not have war. And I don't know how we humans ever will learn, learn from history. And this whole hateful thing that must have started, you know, I often think of how did the Hitler regime rise? Mm -hmm. Well, after World War II, uh, they had something called the Weimar Republic, and that was there from until 1929 or something like that. They kept printing money and money, and it was inflation. So if you wanted to, uh, my Oma told me, if you wanted to buy something, you could have a whole wheelbarrow full of money, but they wanted, they didn't want the money, they wanted the wheelbarrow. Okay, to barter with. Mm. So, and the the Versailles Treaty after the World War One probably initiated the the rising of the Hitler, um, the extremism, and all mm. of that. Now, where the hate came from against certain groups, like the Jewish people or the people who are mentally challenged, or the people who have other, you know, issues. I can't figure it out. But um, my mother's sister was in a concentration camp because she had a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. I found that out. I did never met her until I actually did get to go travel there and she was very nice and she was very she's a little bit like I am a little crazy you know it's like you know push the envelope a little bit you know and so she was in a concentration camp when she was young and they uh, sterilized her so she would not have any children yeah so when you were in school was the war talked about and how did they no, not at all. Now, my brothers say they learned a little bit, but they were four and six years younger. Right. Okay? For us, it was always, uh, you know, that kind well, of thing. Well, because it wasn't history at that point. It was just recent. Right. Past. It's similar to my daughter-in-law and my other son's mm-hmm. um, wife. They went to see the movie Selma. Mm-hmm. And she says, she's in her 50s, 
She says they were never taught that in school because why? Because it was just happening then. So it wasn't in the books. And if we asked anybody about this, it's like, you know, my mother, for example, she says, oh, come on, this is all propaganda. They were used to propaganda, okay? They would tell them all kind of things. She says, it can't be. It just can't be, okay? Uh, because They were also busy doing their own thing. And then little by little you found out millions, you know? And, and then you find out that the field marshal, Rommel, and then you found out about the people who tried to assassinate Hitler, and they all were done away with, and um, Baron von Stauffenberg and all of it. But you find out a little bit at a time. And, you know, you need to remember that. And, uh, you know, it's just... It's just we, we don't learn from history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took German a little bit in school. I don't remember that much, so don't ask me to say anything. But when you go back to visit and you see how you know society is over there now and how younger generations are over there now, do you think that there has been learning from the past? Do you think the way they treat what is now their history has helped the country overall, I guess, grow, or even the way Americans talk about World War II? Yes and no. Because the same thing that is seem, I seem seeing here is this white nationalism. That seems to be there also, okay? I don't know where it's coming from. Now here, when I think about it, it comes... When I see here uh, somebody... I live in Maryland, okay? And when I see somebody riding around in a car with the flag of the South on the back of the pickup truck... I'm thinking, how how would I feel if somebody would be flying the Nazi flag on the back of their car? Mm-hmm. You don't see that in Germany. You right. do not see that. Okay, and I, you know, you have to look at it this way: north and south, south, the southern people should be very proud. And the northern people should be proud too. But at the end of the day, they had a war. And it's over with. So every state should have their state flag and their country flag. And that should be the end of it. Okay, And the rest of it should go in a museum. Mm-hmm. And uh, even, you know, a couple people like in my neighborhood up in in Maryland, and I'm saying, what are they thinking about? What What is it supposed to show? That It doesn't do any good for me. It doesn't do anything for me. Maybe I don't get the whole picture. I don't know. But, but if I was a black person, it probably would really offend me. Yeah. And then, pe- then people say, Inge, you don't understand. It has nothing to do with... with 
with black people. Well, what is it all about? Wasn't that about slavery in some way, you know? Mm-hmm. So just like ours, wasn't that about, you know, you know, you had to keep your blood pure and, you know, and, you know, it's all baloney. We're all children <laughs> of God, right? Yes. I think you should run for office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, well, we'll get away from that a little bit and talk about some happier moments of your life. So you talked about when you were younger, having being the oldest of three, you felt like a mother from a very young age. But yeah. as you got into adulthood, did you always want to have your own kids? I did. Um, but going a little bit backwards from that, uh, so then my dad's parents, he was the only child. They were stuck behind the Iron Curtain also. Oh. But when my youngest brother, Helmut, was born, my mother, ne- my mother and father needed help. So they allowed... The East Germany, they did not want to have older people because they didn't want to keep the pen, pay the pension. Mm-hmm. They wanted to hold on to the young people, you know. So they let them go. They couldn't bring anything out with them, you know, or very little, just more or less what they could carry, you know. Right. But um, but the West Germany was going to pay for their uh, pension and, um, you know, my my oma and my opa they were my oasis. Mm. Uh, at first, they, you know, in in Weissenstein, they lived in one room, okay? Because, again, you know, uh, there wasn't any housing, whatever. And, you know, they kept my little brother a lot. And um, But my opa taught me all about trees and plants, we would go walking. He he would collect mushrooms. He was he was a teacher, you know. He was uh, the rector of a school. Uh, he also served in the war, but he was mostly teaching. And so I learned all about mushrooms and about how I identify the good ones and the bad ones. Now. Over here, not so much because I haven't really... But there, they have lots of mushrooms in in the forest. And to this day, you know, I could go over there and I could play games with them and my, my, you know, and we... I could talk about everything for what my parents didn't have the time, you know. And so those were really good times, okay? And... uh, and my oma and opa, they never could come to the United States to visit. My mom later, after my dad had passed away, my mom had to get a job in a doctor's office. And she was here a couple of times. And uh, she, uh, and like I said, I told her that I stole the bologna. And <laughs> But she couldn't remember it. it. It wasn't a big deal in her mind what happened to the baloney. Did she like visiting the States? She did, but she couldn't speak any English. So uh, she, uh, you know, I mean, it was not even a thought that she might be staying, coming here and stay sure. with me. Uh, plus she had, you know, the... Uh, 
But I tried to go over there when I could. And um, when she was going downhill, I went over, I took a leave, and I stayed with her. And I held her hand when she passed away. So that was good. Yes. Mm-hmm. And did she get to meet all of your, both of your children? Yes, she did. She did. And both my sons, by that time, my husband and I, we had um, separated. And uh, both my sons came over to, uh, to be with me. And she was still alive when they came there. We went um, to dinner as a whole family, my whole German family and my two sons. And I went to dinner. And then uh, my brother and I went back to my mother. And it's, it was like that's what she was waiting for. And she passed away while we were there. That's lovely that you could be there, though. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. must have seemed at peace if she was holding on yeah, for she did. you, too. Um, what has been the most rewarding part about being a mother and now a grandmother? The re- most rewarding part has been, even though... It's not easy at times to be a mother because we all make mistakes. But the most rewarding part I find is that both my sons grew up to be special. And by special I don't mean weird special. I mean they both took the initiative, pulled themselves up, and made something out of themselves, Mm -hmm. and are independent. They both found great wives, and, and I have four granddaughters, and even though these granddaughters never had to do without, okay? Mm-hmm. I think all four of them could do without if they had to. And that's a good thing, mm-hmm. okay? Because we can't count on having all this all of our life, okay? And I think there are some people I know, I don't know how they would survive. But I, I feel... Like my granddaughters could. Yeah. They're strong women, just mm-hmm. like a strong woman before them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess we'll just do a few wrap-up questions. Um, you're still young, so what? Yeah. <laughs> you are, and you look great, and you're <laughs> still traveling and all of those things. My grandparents are a little bit older. Uh, so what aspirations do you have for the next few years? Well, I, my one of my granddaughters is attending St. Andrews in Scotland, oh. where Prince William met Kate. And I wanted to go over there. In fact, I had plans to go over there uh, 
in uh, April. I was going to go to London. I'd never been to London, Scotland and Ireland. My granddaughter was going to take the train down to London. We were going to go see where the Beatles, you know, uh, Liverpool, and we were going to do the Caswells and make our way up to St. Andrews and then, you know, go up to the... um, can't think of it right now, but anyway, do Scotland and then go over. And my brother was going, from Germany was going to meet us there. Well, it didn't work out. Right. So the, I have been pretty much many places. Uh, since I've retired, I've been to Morocco, I've been to Peru, I've been to Galapagos Islands, I've been to Greece, to Turkey... I've been very fortunate, mm-hmm. okay? So that was on my bucket list to go there, you know, and uh, it didn't happen. And I just hope that I can do that again and I, you know, just be healthy enough to... to. On the other hand, things slow down, okay? When, mm-hmm. when you're past 70, you know, things slow down. I'm a cancer survivor. And so you can't do what you... Like I said before, I don't know how I did what I used to do. And uh, and it's okay, okay? Because I'm not sad over it, you know? I just want to be able to uh, to do it again. And, of course, because of COVID, there weren't really refunds, you know? And the uh, Airbnbs that I had booked in, they're hurting too. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, if you... If you come, then we'll give you a discount and, you know, whatever. But on the other hand, you know, we don't know how long this COVID thing is going. Yeah, absolutely. But hopefully you'll make it over there and see the UK and Ireland. Right. (laughs) Um, You've imparted so many little bits of wisdom, and it seems a lot of your family members, your grandparents, your father have given you a lot of wisdom that you've carried with you over the years. Is there anything that you'd like, or any bit of advice or a little piece of wisdom that you have for people who are maybe facing something that is brand new and a bit scary? Being scary is natural, but it's like an ex. It's it's a wasted emotion. If you want to do something, somebody asked me about six months ago, "What would you do different if you had to do it all over again?" And there was quite scary times, like going in another country and starting all over again, okay? Like, it's easy to just knock yourself down and say, I can't do it. But then again, nobody's doing that to yourself. You're doing it to yourself. And... Unless you're somehow 
handicapped in some way or another. The world is your oyster. You should be able to do what you want to do. Now, some of us may choose, choose, I don't want to do anything, really. And that's okay, too, you know. But what I don't like is when people want to just sit on their behind and want free handouts. I am not a extremist on that, but I would like to say to those people, come on, you, you can do something. Uh, and you know, but, but then again, we also have so many employers who are not good employers, who take advantage of, of their people. They don't give them health insurance. They do, do not provide the support or whatever. It seems to me if I have a good employee, simple thing. If you have a cleaning lady, I had my, a neighbor of mine, okay? She had a cleaning lady. And she only had her once a month. Mm-hmm. Well, the lady needed that money, okay? Uh, and so she says, well, I, don't, I can't have her now because of the COVID. And so I'm not paying her. But it wasn't the lady's fault. It's, it's little things like right. that. And she's not an official employer, but then we have other employers. I, I can name names there. So I, I think... You know, as long as people are, are considerate and um, nobody sh- should want to be carried by others, but mm-hmm. there should be something for everybody. What motivates you day to day? I'm not as motivated anymore <laughs> as I used to be, okay? It's like with this COVID thing right now, I take a walk, that's my motivation. I, I drive, you know, to the store. I go there. I do. <laughs> I, I'm not like I was motivated. Now, is that the COVID or is this my, me being lazy? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> I think we're all in the same boat on that one. Um, that's about all I have for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? No, I I really think uh, I there's so much more in my mind that the main thing is when I see people who cut themselves down, I can't do that. I wish I could do that. I you know uh, simple things like sewing on a button. Mm. No, it's it's like I can't do that. Oh, I I. It's, I, I don't understand that. It's, it, it's just, um, the world, it's a good world that we're in. And if we don't mess it up with nuclear wars and whatever, it can be a climate, you know, change and whatever we do. But just think of it, if, Somebody pushes a button on this nuclear um, 
what can happen, okay? Everything is gone, and it's a simple, and it can be tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But we have too many countries with this kind of thing, and it does, that does worry me. Not so much for me, because my life is pretty much over, but for my children and for my grandchildren, you know, that they may, and for you, okay? It's, it, it worries me. I mean, if something like that would happen, bombs and whatever we had in the past was like nothing compared to that. Well, this has been so lovely to hear your story. I mean, you are a fantastic storyteller and speaker, and you have lived quite the life and have more of it to go. You're so sweet. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope I didn't bore you too much. No, you're fascinating, and I think everyone will needs to hear what you have to say, not just about your anecdotes, but about how we treat other people. And learn from the past. Yeah, I know. So thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Grand Project. Please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcast if you like what you hear. And follow us on Instagram at Grand Project Pod. Special thanks to Allie Hobbs for coordinating this interview and for being such a supportive, fun cousin and friend. And to Oma Ingeborg for sharing her story. If you or someone you know has a grandparent or someone who has acted as a grandparent that you'd like to nominate for an interview, email us at grandprojectpod at gmail.com. This has been The Grand Project. We'll be back soon with more grand stories. Thank you again for listening.